The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of August 24th, 2020. On this week's show, we'll talk about Luka Doncic's incredible buzzer-beating step-back three to lift the Dallas Mavericks over the LA Clippers on Sunday. Bang! Bang! And his emergence as a bubble and NBA superstar. David Ubbin of The Athletic will come on to discuss the start of the football season, the high school football season, that is, which commenced last week in states around the country. COVID be damned. And finally, Ethan Strauss, also of The Athletic, will be here to assess the continued drop in NBA television ratings and whether that matters. I'm the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and also Wild and Outside. I'm in Washington, D.C. Joining me from Palo Alto, California, is Slate staff writer and Slow Burn Season 3 host, Joel Anderson. What's up, Joel? What's up, Stefan? You know, I guess this is a, a show that lives up to the billing. What is it? Two's company, three's a crowd. Just you and me right now, man. It is just the two of us. Yeah, shout out Bill Withers. We can make it if we try. (laughs) (laughs) National editor of Slate, host of Slow Burn Season 4, David Duke, author of the award-winning book, The Queen, Josh Levine, is mostly away this week. I say mostly because Josh and Josh alone did the interview with Ethan Strauss, relieving Joel and me of the heavy burden of doing three segments all by ourselves. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, well, appreciate it. I guess he's, uh, you need to slow burn four and he's already going diva on us. Hey, he's entitled to a vacation. That's fair. Fair point. All right, I did my Mike Breen impersonation in the intro to the show and LeBron James tweeted something similar. And I suspect a lot of 10-year-olds in Slovenia are also screaming, bang, bang, today too. (laughs) For those who might not be familiar with it, bang is NBA play-by-play announcer Mike Breen's signature call. His deployment of two bangs on Sunday after Doncic drained his 27-footer over a helpless Reggie Jackson for a 135-133 win and a 2-2 tie in the first-round playoff series, it cemented the shot in basketball lore. Let's listen to the original. Finney Smith to inbound. Back to Doncic. Doncic pulls up, three-pointer. Bang! Bang! It's good! Doncic wins the game at the buzzer! Man, Joel, that brought a huge smile to my face when it happened. And just again, listening to it, it was great broadcast work. Doncic finished with 43 points, 17 rebounds, and 13 assists, becoming just the third player in NBA history after Oscar Robertson and Charles Barkley to go 40-15-10 in a playoff game. Through the first four games of the series, he's averaging 31.5, 10.5, and 9.8 which rounding up is a triple-double. And remember that he did his business on Sunday on a sprained ankle and without his Latvian wingman, Kristaps Porzingis, who sat out with a left heel contusion. Mavericks coach Rick Carlisle said after the game, this game today was from another planet. Retired NBA player Channing Frye tweeted, what are we witnessing? To which Dwayne Wade replied, I don't know, bro, but I'm glad to witness it from my couch. So, Joel, are we all witnesses? I mean, so as a Houstonian, I'm congenitally predisposed to never give Dallas credit for anything. But Luca's incredible, man. And, you know, where it's possible to initially to say, oh, some of this is hype. 
you know, y'all, you know, you hear about the legendary Euro star. I, it, it reminded me like when Ricky Rubio came over, right? And you heard so much about how great he was at such a young age, and we saw him in the Olympics, and then it didn't quite add up. And so I was like, with Luca, it was sort of the same thing. I was like, let's just let's just hold off before we crown him. And then you see what he's doing against the Clippers, who are the league favorite right now, with two of the best perimeter defenders of their generation. And he's getting whatever he wants, dude. And it's not like he's incredibly fast or anything. It's not like he's beating these guys off the dribble. He's like slow-footing his ass into the lane and getting whatever he wants against Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. So maybe we're not witnesses, but like whatever this is, I mean, I struggle to remember a time when I can remember anybody this young being this dominant against a team this good, right? I mean, have you seen anything like that? Now, he's 21 years old. Yeah. And, you know, it's one thing, and I think you're right, the hype is generated largely by people who aren't players, right? By media members who want to be excited about someone coming into the league, especially, I think, someone from Europe. I mean, I think we went through that period in the late 80s and 90s where the skepticism about European players from NBA players was genuine. And there's a race factor here, too. You know, he's white. We want to see a great white player, at least medium, some white media members do. And I think that contributed to some skepticism of people like Tony Kukoc back in the day. But now there is this universal acclaim. And I think that when players in the league step up and respect other players in the league, you know it's genuine. I mean, some of the tweets after the game on Sunday, NBA.com collected a bunch of them. CJ McCollum, sheesh, step back to freedom, D-Wade capital W-O-W with like 10 exclamation points. Luca, we are not worthy. Bradley Beal, oh my God, Luca. Bobby Portis, Luca, a bad boy. DeMarcus Cousin, young fella special. Tristan yeah. Thompson, Luca is different. And then Steph Curry, that's ridiculous. And then Blouses, that's from <laughs> Chappelle Show. I had to look that reference. Okay, up, yeah, you didn't know that reference. I didn't oh, know that reference. Stephen, you know. come I on. am what I am. Game blouses. That's uh, Prince. There you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah Prince. And uh, it is totally <laughs> worth, by the way, going and watching the clip of uh, Charlie Murphy telling that story about Prince. Great. So, you know, I, I think that's what we're seeing here. There's this, this universal recognition that he is damn good at 21 in the top five, at least right now, of NBA players. And, and you know, the question before the playoffs was, well, can he do it in the playoffs? He was rookie of the year. He had a good season. He can score in buckets, but can he do it now? And he's doing it now. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, that it's who he's doing it against that gives it a lot more credence, right? Because if he was doing it against, let's randomly, the Pacers, the Magic, it would probably be a little bit easier to dismiss, but he's on the team that's the underdog. He's the guy that's missing his second best player. They're the seventh seed. This is not supposed to happen. He's not supposed to make it look this easy or efficient, right? And he's able to do that while hurt. And so like, you know, yeah, we're listening. You know, we're watching a lot of this unfold on social media. You were just talking about following all those tweets. And so there's all this debate about where, is he the best 21-year-old ever? And you know, then people bring up, oh, no, Michael Jordan was 21 years old when he dropped 60 on the Celtics. And, right. you, know, you, you know, you know, Kobe was great. LeBron was great. Shaq were great. Magic were great at all these ages. And I'm like, but that says everything you need to know about how good Luka is, is that when you invoke those names, it really doesn't matter where you rank. If you're in that conversation, that tells you how special he is and how special what he's doing is right now, right? Well, and, and one of his best games in the bubble round was against Giannis. 
and the Bucks had the number one defense in the NBA this season. Doncic had 36, 19, and 14. They won 136 to 132 in overtime, and he controlled the game. And the thing about Doncic, of course, is that, like Magic, he can do everything. It's the ball handling, it's the court vision, it's the passing, and add to that, you know, he hasn't been the greatest three-point shooter yet, you know, shooting like 30%, which is not terrific, but, but damn, that looked like a pretty good three, and he made a couple other pretty amazing ones against the Clips, too. Isn't that the right comparison? Because, you you know, I mean, you mentioned the racial implications of this, right? That, you know, oh, he's a white player. And so then you hear these comparisons to Bird, Bird all Bird, the time. Bird, yeah. But I'm like, Magic is exactly right. no. the comparison that I think you know, when you think of like yeah. a tall guy, not exactly. You know, nobody would have said Magic was an incredible athlete. I no. mean, by the standards of NBA players. Yes. Right? <laughs> no, you're right. right. No, that's exactly what I think. I think that's dead on. I mean, when you watched Magic, go back and watch those clips of Magic playing, and it's not like he's blowing by people. It's that that efficiency, that smoothness, that effortlessness yes. that Doncic possesses. And Doncic is 230 pounds, man. He's yeah. not some little guy. Oh, it's real easy to get him confused with, like, power fours, because especially now that we can't see everybody's last names on the right. court. I mean— when he has the ball, it becomes apparent who he is. But for a second, you're like, wait a minute, what's you do? Is that Maxi Kleber or, whatever? you know, whoever? And then all of a sudden, you know, oh, that's the dude. That's the guy. And so, yeah, I, you know, I, I did not expect to be this impressed by him so early. But, I mean, it seems like, I mean, it's so unfair. If you're, if you're a fan of an NBA team... And you've just not had a you know superstar like you know I'm trying to think of you know maybe the Pacers the Pacers have just had some real misfortune right you know speaking of Paul George but they go from Dirk the Mavs hand over their franchise from Dirk to Luca I mean that's like a Peyton Manning to Andrew Luck and like not even like it's even better because you know probably you might argue that Luca is better and more efficient than than Dirk was you know already right like that's a conversation. Like, imagine the luck that the Mavs were able to get Luka where they did in the draft right now and and, and and ready to go to replace their franchise-defining player. It's unbelievable. The Mavericks traded up from number five in the uh, 2018 draft, traded with the Hawks, to move up to number three because the Phoenix Suns and the Sacramento Kings decided to pick DeAndre Ayton and Marvin Bagley, one and two. And look, Aiton and Bagley haven't had terrible first two years in the league. No. You know, Aiton averaged 16 and 18. He also was suspended for testing positive for a diuretic. Mm. Bagley averaged 15. He was mostly hurt this season. Um, They're not terrible players, but the hindsight with this is getting to be like Greg Oden, Michael Jordan kind of hindsight. Oh, well, you know, it's it's weird you say that too, man, because, I mean... (sighs) There was so much hype with Luca. Like, it's not like anybody didn't see this coming. He sure. dominated the world's second best league as a teenager. As a teenager, right? And so, like, that's a mistake that is a little bit more understandable in 1984 when Sam Bowie is right. a dominant and Akeem Olajuwon a dominant, and it's a different era of basketball. But it seems like Luca was tailor made for this era, um, and he's done nothing but to just justify that since then. I mean. He was the head of the most 
effective, explosive offense in NBA history this year. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it can't, that can't be overlooked. That, that that The Mavericks had the best offense in NBA history this year, and he's the big reason for it. And so, you know, the Clippers caught a bad one, man. This is not an ordinary number seven seed. And so mm-hmm. I, feel, I, I don't feel bad for them, but you can kind of see how that might happen, right? Well, and there's also the sort of the equalizing, the flattening factor of the bubble. There's no right. home court advantage. It is a different vibe. And I want to talk about that vibe a little bit, Joel, because what I've really loved about watching these games has been that it feels like you're in the gym. Like these dudes are just playing pickup and credit to the networks, to TNT and ESPN and ABC and the NBA for experimenting with camera angles that give us a sort of different view that let us feel like we're courtside. There was a courtside video of Luca's shot that was really exhilarating Mm -hmm. because it was like watching some dude do something great because there's nobody in the stands. You're hearing the squeaks. You're hearing the explosion of joy like it was an NCAA tournament game. And the view gives you the sensation of what it's like to watch the best athletes do something amazing up close. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I said, necessity is the mother of invention, right? So they had to figure out a way to put up a really good product. And they had all this time to sort of build towards this. I've mentioned this in a couple of other episodes. There was always this theory that the NBA might go toward more soundstage type atmospheres, that there'd be less emphasis, you know, smaller crowds and much more intimate settings to watch basketball games. And this is sort of it. And now we see it's kind of amazing. The quality of basketball has been really good. I guess if like if you really love defense and you miss, you know, the Knicks and Heat of the 90s, then maybe this is very frustrating for you. Everybody's getting their shots or whatever. But um, if you just like hoop and you just wanted to stumble in on, you know, watching the pros up close and seeing the way they talk to each other, you know, we can hear Carmelo cursing all the damn time, like Chris Herring wrote about in 538, you know. It's just so much of more of an intimate feeling. And I've just really enjoyed it, man. I mean, I didn't, you know, I apologize. I was one of the people that said they should not be doing this. This is stupid. Maybe we shouldn't be trying this. But uh, upon further reflection, this has been pretty damn cool. Yeah, that Chris Herring story was really fun. He like he actually did like a data breakdown. They listened yeah. to all the, all the TNT broadcasts. Yeah, um, and calculated how many times TNT had to cut out because somebody was cursing on the court. And it turns out that Carmelo is king. He was plus seven on getting cut out. So well, I mean, he's going to make the hall for all sorts of reasons. And that's another, he was you know, <laughs> the most efficient cursor, the most prolific cursor uh, in NBA playoff history. <laughs> so we did though, I mean, the, the Nuggets jazz game also came on last night, another great game, another high scoring game, two really dominant players and Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray. Right. And um, I mean, the Nuggets are the higher seeded team, But they just can't seem to do anything with Donovan Mitchell, right? Donovan Mitchell had 51 on Sunday. Jamal Murray had 50. It's the first time in history of the NBA that two guys went for 50 in a playoff game. Mitchell also had 57 in game one of the series, which was the only game that the Jazz lost. (laughs) Does Mitchell now belong in this group of elite NBA players? He's in his third year in the league. He came out of Louisville. Uh, He was not like projected as superstar was he joel no not at all and you know what's really interesting as i wear a you know stefan can see this not everybody Mm -hmm. else can i'm wearing a fear the beard shirt uh for james harden just totally coincidental just threw it on this morning but 
I saw Donovan Mitchell the last two postseasons because they played against the Rockets and the Rockets mm-hmm. eliminated them. And I was like, oh, Donovan Mitchell, a very good player, but, you know, he'll, there's sort of a cap on him because he's not an efficient scorer and he's not exactly a playmaker in the way that everybody else is. And for whatever reason, he's just taken off. Now, I mean, I would, maybe this needs to be a little bit more context of this because the Nuggets are missing one of their best defenders and Gary Harris. Uh, one of their more, you know, st- sturdier, better p- perimeter defenders in the league, and that guy, um, and you know, the I, who knows what to think about any of this stuff. So soon, like again, the context for these games is all sort of weird because it's not really a continuation of the season that we already had. We're looking at teams sort of in a new context now. So, you know, Donovan Mitchell is going off against this Nuggets team. So. Obviously, you know, things are very different now. You know, the Nuggets are not the same team that they were when they were compiling a record to be the third seed. Nikola Jokic has lost a lot of weight and, strangely enough, has just been sort of absent. Like, I I just haven't felt his presence in the games in the way that we've discussed all these other players that are MVP caliber. So, yeah, man, I mean, you know, Donovan Mitchell has just sort of taken this moment and grabbed it by its throat. And we obviously shouldn't be talking about him in a lot of the same ways we should be talking about Luca because he's been every bit as dominant and, you know, arresting a, a presence in these games as anybody else. Yeah, this is turning out to be a lot of fun. Um, and I think that's the biggest surprise for me. It was, you know, you weren't sure would the players respond to the environment would the games, how would the games look and feel on TV? I'm kind of like seeing the virtual fans, the video screens behind the benches. I like seeing the players kind of spaced out and reacting. It's that camera angle from behind the officiating table when they shoot through the plexiglass and you, you hear the ref communicating with the game operators, that's really interesting to me. Um, And I think it it also feels like for all the boredom that the players are probably feeling off the court, it feels like it's like a bunch of guys collectively being part of something and enjoying what they do in a different way, unencumbered by the sort of brutal travel and the media focus in your face and the, the scrutiny that comes with being a professional athlete. It's been kind of refreshing, I feel, and, and I'm psyched for the rest of the playoffs. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think that, you know, to kind of end it on that point, I think that's a thing that we're really sort of underselling. The the idea that these guys don't have to travel anymore because we've seen studies showing about how hard mm-hmm. travel is on athletes' bodies. And so we're just getting to see them you know, maybe this isn't quite their peak because there still is this long layoff, but we're that's not a factor anymore. And we're just getting to see who. And in and of itself, that's pretty damn cool. And man, if they peak at the conference finals and in the NBA finals, we're all going to benefit from that. Absolutely. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The debate over whether there should be a college football season continued last week. On Friday, about 25 parents protested outside of Big Ten headquarters to demand more information about the league's decision to postpone the fall season. 
at least three teams, Vanderbilt, East Carolina, and Louisiana Monroe, paused practices after a spiking positive coronavirus test. And at Georgia State, a freshman quarterback announced he would miss the season after being diagnosed with a heart condition as a result of contracting the virus. But while that was happening, high school football was kicking off in Utah, Alaska, both Dakotas, Indiana, and Alabama, and in Tennessee, where David Ubbin of The Athletic attended the first game of the season in the state last Thursday in Knoxville. For three hours, Ubbin wrote, the debate about whether players could or should play faded. David Ubbin joins us from Knoxville, where he also covers Vols football. So, David, thanks for joining us. And what was it like watching a football game amid a damn pandemic? Man, it was weird. (laughs) I, (laughs) I was actually talking to a friend of mine about this earlier today. The levels of witnessing it were hard to wrap your mind around in the moment because from a pure sports fan, human level, man, it was awesome. Just playing football. You could see guys playing. You weren't thinking about the fact that there's a global pandemic that's killed, what, 170,000 plus Americans. It's hard to really just enjoy it because even if everyone's fine at the game that you're at, you think about the concept of high school football and you think about how many people have masks below their nose or aren't wearing masks or aren't, you know, socially distanced or just sitting there and you're thinking, man, if five people in here have this, like this is going to be a problem. It was conflicting, especially as somebody whose livelihood is tied to people playing football and now seeing that reality and staring it in the face Man, it was one of the weirdest nights I've had this year in a year full of weird nights. You know, your story definitely conveyed that weirdness and the ambivalence. And, you know, as Joel and I have been sort of counseling against the idea of football this year and what we know about which states are not doing a great job following guidelines and making a good faith effort to control the spread of the virus— you could really feel where you were and what it was like. So credit to you on that. It was a terrific read about this weird moment in sports. And I started reading one paragraph in your story, David, and it went like this. Turner knew his players were concerned. He felt it. He heard it, especially from the seniors. And I thought, oh, they're concerned about coronavirus. (laughs) But no, I kept reading and it's, Would they get to play any games in 2020? One game, five games, every game? He didn't have answers. No one does. That, to me, felt like it was so on the nose about what the culture of football in certain parts of this country um, are going through. Hey, it's not really about the virus. It's about can we play? When can we play? Yeah, it's, it's hard because I remember myself at 17, 18, I'd be thinking about the exact same things. You sure. can't, it's easy to look as an adult and be like, yeah, these kids, they don't really have a sense of the bigger picture. But then it's like, no kid does. I think that's why you're seeing on college campuses, you're seeing all these videos of bars being packed. And it's like, I'm going to be fine. They probably are going to be fine. Um, but who might not be fine is the person that, okay, you go to a bar or whatever, or you contract the virus and you say, ah, it's not a big deal. I'm not going to get tested. I feel fine. You might be asymptomatic. You go out to eat, you pass it to somebody who, you know, is not going to be fine. And, you know, America is obviously a very individualistic culture. And I think as you look at all the many reasons why the pandemic has impacted America more than other countries, it's hard not to see it as, you know, that is a big reason why. And the reality of life in a pandemic is your personal choices are not your personal choices. So to play this game, the coach and athletic director at Halls High School 
They mandated temperature checks, right? Required fans to wear a mask, allowed only 30% of the stadium to be filled, even put strips of red tape six feet apart in the stands and banned team handshakes, like after a game, right? Mm -hmm. And so you even wrote, you know, it was evident early and throughout the night that their work in their home stadium earlier in the day was mostly being ignored. Did this just seem like virus protocol theater, basically? And like everybody just kind of knew, oh, we're supposed to go through the motions here, but nobody, I mean, we're out here. Obviously, we don't give a shit about (laughs) if we get this. Yeah, I think there's always a tough balance between real precautions and COVID theater. And I think everyone sort of acknowledges that, you know, it's, it's weird, like, you're playing football and and the other team was uh, Gibbs and they were very aware that you know, this game was broadcast locally and they're very aware that the camera is going to be fixed on their sideline for the whole game. Because we, we have to, you know, both coaches said we don't want to be the reason why people don't get to play. And it's great that they, you know, your, your team is socially distanced and you're sitting, you're, you're standing six feet apart on the sidelines and that's awesome you know, doing what you got to do, but you're playing football and you're going to be riding on a bus with these guys and like drawing the line between these are things that are going to protect people. And these are, you know, COVID theater measures that just look good that, that probably aren't really doing that much. It's a tough line to, to sort of walk. One of the coaches kind of just gives it up in the the story when he was talking about the precautions and he says, if it looks good to the people who are against football and it gets us to continue to play, I'll do it. It did not feel to me that coaches and educators in Knoxville were asking whether this is necessary or whether it's right. Did you get that sense in talking to people? I think they're trying. I think everyone knows that there's only so much you can do. Like the concept of holding a high school or college football game, there is an inherent risk there that is unavoidable. And I think, you know, you can say you got to wear a mask in the stadium. Were everyone wearing a mask once they got into the stadium? No. People wore a mask. They had one to get in. But I don't know what there. I don't know if I'd put a number. There were a lot of people that just took it off or had it around their neck during the game. And if you're sitting in a crowd and everybody's yelling, which obviously they do, you don't have to be an epidemiologist to say that's probably not great. Um, and so, again, I think it's not necessarily about that specific game, but you start about extrapolating this over hundreds of games over a bunch of weeks in 38 states, and you're like, this does not seem like the greatest concept. But yeah, you can socially distance the seats. Are people going to apply? Are you know, are people going to actually sit apart and only sit within six feet of people they live with? I don't know. Maybe some places. I saw that that uh, AD in Utah like stopped the game because fans took off their masks. You know, and he said, "We're not starting this game back up until you put your mask back on." But you know, socially distanced seats. I didn't see people necessarily applying to those or you know or, or trying those. You know, saying, "Do you have symptoms? Please don't come in. Here's a temperature check." They're all kind of half measures. There's only so much they can do. And it's hard when there are legitimate arguments the other side. I think the idea of mental health of kids, I think that's a legitimate argument of, man, if I'm a 17-year-old kid and I've been working hard to play high school football and this is my last year and you say I can't play, man, that's hard. It is. It is hard. There, There are no right answers in all of this. There are only wrong answers and perhaps slightly less wrong answers where other people get hurt in different ways. I absolutely sympathize with this. Like when I was 17 years old, like if you had told me I had to miss my entire senior year, you know, I would have just been devastated. And there's like, there's not a week that goes by that I don't think about my senior year of high school football, right? But I've read about all these kids. So like the Washington Post wrote about 
kids, you know, transferring from other states. Like there's been like guys moved from Orange County to Valdosta, Georgia, a, a USC recruit who moved there to play football. And all these guys that are sort of crisscrossing and trying to find games around the country. And I'm just sort of throwing this out to both of you all. For years, people have like tried to pretend that football is just some sort of regular extracurricular activity, right? That, well, school comes first. We focus on school and football is not that important. But then all of a sudden, as soon as shit gets bad, like now people are telling us that football is important to the community and the mental health of children. And I just wonder if like we'll ever be able to get back the plot on considering football just a regular extracurricular activity. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? Because we just like, we, we people have pretended for so long that it doesn't matter, that school is the thing that matters. But as soon as shit went bad, all of a sudden people say, we've got to have football. It's important to the community and important to our kids. Do you think we can ever, like once this is over, what does that look like then? I think it's hard. I think in high school football, I think that the the value of it to a community, there's some money in there, but it, it, it is like sort of a coming together of a smaller community, especially in small towns. I mean, I, I've lived in Dallas for the better part of the last decade. I've seen Texas high school football. I know what it means to those small towns, but college football is so much more complicated because there's so much money tied up into it. The entire economic structure of higher education is largely tied into them playing these games, unpaid athletes producing in many cases, nine digit revenues for their universities. So I, I think when you're saying high school, can it be just a game, just an extracurricular activity? I think it is more, but that's not a entirely uncharacteristic um, description of what we're doing. But college, I, I think that genie has been out of the bottle, what, since 1984, the Supreme Court decision where you started having all this TV money start rolling in and just seeing it's hard because players want to play. The coaches want to play. All these things happen. Yes, they want to play. But if there wasn't, $100 million on the line at some of these universities, do you think they'd be playing college football? Absolutely not. There's no way. It would not be happening. Yeah, but David, there's not $100 million on the line in Valdosta, Georgia. This is true. And the coach of that team, you know, said, I disagree with what California is doing, suspending the football season. And then I'm reading one of these stories, and it turns out that the football program at this high school had four positive COVID tests this summer, including a coach. And, you know, the coach sort of walks it off by saying, yeah, we check temperature twice a day, you know, sanitize our hands like crazy. And he goes on to say, I think we need football right now more than we ever needed football. This to me is the crux of the debate. Colleges have researchers, epidemiologists, the way the Big Ten and the Pac-12 came to their decisions was because they consulted a lot of scientists. Scientists don't exist in Valdosta, Georgia, who are helping school districts make these decisions. They're relying on the states to help make decisions. So this is, as you've said, hit or miss. And what these there are ripple effects to all of this. So you get all these kids transferring schools looking for a place to play. And you get coaches who argue that this is more important than anything. And I want to go back to what I asked you earlier. You know, in your conversations with the people in Tennessee, did you get a sense that administrators had actually debated whether this was the right thing to do? I didn't talk to them that deeply about it because I think from football people, 
there's so few people who say that we shouldn't play that I just generally assume that most people think that they should play because they're wanting to play. And if they want to sit out, they can. So I think it's more a sense of, can we a lot more than should we? And the answer to can we in most States has been, yes, you can. And if they can, they will, you know, I wouldn't consider myself a high school football expert by any means, but I have not heard of any stories of places where they've said you guys can play football and schools districts are saying, you know, no, we're probably not. I'm sure there's probably some out there, but the vast majority of places where they're saying you can play football, you will. Again, I don't know a lot about the dynamics of school boards, but if I'm just thinking about the power dynamics, I think that's a lot of how this all goes down is, you know, the school boards, the people that are going to be making these decisions. And in a lot of places, the parents are the ones that have a lot of power. Parents are people that have money in the town. And if a lot of those people want to play football and the school board says, we don't want you to play football. Well, there's going to be some back channel conversations there that say, no, you do want us to play football. Just trust us. You do want us to play football. <laughs> I think that is what you're going to see in a lot of places where the people who want to play, the families that sort of run a lot of these small towns, the people that run these small towns they're going to sort of get their way. And, and um, I, I think you're going to see that in a lot of places across America um, where there's no families that run universities. There's no families that run conferences. It's people that do have, like you said, scientists and researchers and all these things that they're constantly in communications with. And the presidents, the education people are making these decisions and sort of saying, okay, we understand what the ADs want, what the coaches want, what the players want, but the presidents are making the call. David, uh, thanks for that. Thanks for risking your life to go cover Hall versus Gibbs in <laughs> Knoxville. Who who won, by the way? Uh, Hall's won, 31-17. Oh, man. Well, congratulations to you, Halls. I hope, <laughs> I hope that carries you uh, through the rest of the season. So, yeah, thanks for stopping by. And we're going to invite David to our bonus segment where we're going to talk about this and some other things. Before we listen to Josh's conversation with Ethan Strauss, wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, David Ubbin of The Athletic will come back and talk some more about college football. If you want to hear that and you're not a member, here's our reminder that you can sign up for Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can do that at slate.com slash hangupplus. The audience for NBA games on television has plummeted over the last decade. There are reasons, like cord cutting and across-the-board drops in TV watching generally, and there are also some mitigating factors, like unreliable measurement of online viewership. The Orlando bubble, though, was seen as a way for the NBA to regain some lost ground. Instead, ratings have actually been lower than those for pre-bubble games. Big trends tend to result from multiple factors, Ethan Strauss wrote in a piece published in The Athletic last week. Among the factors he cited, that players, coaches, and broadcasters have been highly critical of the United States and its government while remaining mostly silent about China. Josh talked to Ethan Strauss about his story. Let's listen to their conversation. All right, Ethan, why don't you start by just laying out the issue as you understand it. Um, What a the NBA's ratings look like now? And why do you perceive this to be a problem for the NBA? Well, the NBA's ratings um, are down 45% since they did the lockout season, the old lockout. And it was hastily promoted. You would have thought that it wouldn't have been so highly rated. But people watched. They were into LeBron. They were into the Heat, that particular storyline and some other storylines. And from then until now, on network TV, on those ABC games, the big games, viewership is down 45%. 
Um, and during that same time on network TV, baseball and football have seen no decline. They have been completely flat. Um, and the declines have been represented elsewhere, where it is down 40% versus TNT of that era. It is down perhaps around 20% for ESPN. I say perhaps because he still need the final numbers. And we've also seen local TV ratings decline and people do a lot of coping. People try to hem and haw about the reasons why, as this bad news is accumulated, um, streaming and, you know, pirating of games. It's just all f- trying not to face the reality that the NBA is seeing a decline in domestic popularity. Why it's a problem for them? It's because they are in an economically precarious time right now, uh, considering that they are uh, about to have a season. We don't know if they can even have fans. Gate revenue is a huge part of how the NBA makes money. Uh, you've had owners spending a lot of money to get the teams. And one way they can extend their credit lines is to sign a new TV deal, which is at least a promise of cash coming in. And to do that, and they want to do that, uh, it would be great if viewership was going gangbusters. But as I have said, it is not. There were stories in 2018 about how um, NBA ratings were going up across ABC, ESPN, TNT, NBA TV. Um, I'm looking at this story from Sporting News saying viewership for 17 games on ABC jumped 16% to average 3.8 million viewers. Has Have things changed since 2018? Um, or was that just a blip and the overall trend line has gone has been going down the overall trend line has been going down and i think that the blips often get overshared because the leagues like to trumpet them but um i think around that time there was a lot of interest in the warriors and kevin durant and that did buoy uh the bigger games to a certain extent and it did buoy the league to a certain extent but you know, over eight years, you lose nearly half your viewership on your big games. Um, that is the general. That is the general story. That is the general trend. And even if you have these pockets of uptick, the broad sweep has not been good, despite all the coping. You've categorized explanations for why the ratings are down as excuses, right? So let me know if the if, if this is an explanation or an excuse that the NBA audience viewership is younger than in some of the other sports that you've cited and also more non-white than in other sports you've cited? I think there's an element of explanation where younger people like the NBA, but the liking of the NBA doesn't necessarily translate into them sitting down and watching two hours of an NBA game. If you can figure out a way to make money off people enjoying seeing highlights over YouTube or highlights over Twitter, um, then, you know, good, good for you. It just doesn't seem like they've been really able to do that. And I just look, I think it's basic. It's Occam's razor. The interest in your sport is represented by people sitting down and watching your sport. That's that's what it is. If you look at Gallup surveys, the NBA doesn't appear to be declining in popularity. Um, if you look at when people say, what is your favorite sport to watch? It's been flat over the last 15 years. Um, if you look at people saying whether they're a fan of that sport or not, um, interest in the NBA has gone up in recent years. So if Occam's razor is that the NBA is declining in popularity domestically, you mentioned that in in your piece, 
then how do you explain the fact that on this metric of literally whether the NBA is more or less popular, it seems to either be flat or increasingly popular? Well, is the metric what you do with your remote controller is the metric what you say to Gallup? I mean, I think the quick and dirty measurement is whether you're willing to watch the sport. I mean, they're down nearly half their viewership. Like, what are we doing? Like, why are we avoiding this? That's what I don't understand. Why are we avoiding this? You lost nearly half your audience in eight years. We're going to talk about a Gallup survey? That, that just seems kind of ridiculous to me. Would you rather be the NFL where you have this huge TV audience, but there are also existential questions about whether the sport can exist? If we're just talking about pure profit, pure money making, then yes, I think you would rather be the NFL. Now, do I want to morally be presiding over the NFL? That's a different question. But as far as how entrenched they are in American culture and how much money they're making and how much interest there is. I think it was over 15 million people watch the NFL draft. Yeah, they are at a starting position that is, I think, more secure than the NBA's. You mentioned some theories in your most recent piece about why ratings could be um, down. And you said the thorniest one is the political component. I am familiar with the, the theory, the idea that some segment of viewers might be turned off because of whether it's things players say off the court or, you know, the social justice messages on their jerseys, the fact that they're not talking about China when they're talking about Black Lives Matter. What is the argument or what is the evidence that this is causing a decline in viewership? I think it's completely obvious to people who aren't in the bubble. I mean, you have your most precipitous drop this last year after China. I mean, an absolute freefall. Um, where you're having double digits on the national, double digits on the local ratings. And yeah, maybe you're never going to be able to prove it uh, to a T that it had something to do. It had something to do with the the China effect on the ratings, but that is when the NBA is hitting the news, you know, for people who are not necessarily completely engaged. I think that when you talk to a lot of people who aren't within media, people maybe where their politics don't line up 100% with what's being evinced. Uh, yeah, a lot of people are turned off by it. I think that it doesn't take a lot of imagination, really. I, I feel like I'm being put in the position in a way of just explaining the obvious that gravity exists. And I guess I would say to you, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't it have an impact? I doubt that people who claim to be very upset about the NBA stance in China are actually upset about the NBA stance on China, considering, for instance, that um, Trump failed to respond to the coronavirus in a timely way because he said that he didn't want to piss off China because um, they were working on some great trade deals. I don't see any evidence that people who were big Trump fans before that are now like really hate Trump because he wasn't hard enough on, on China. The component is a little more complicated than that. It's the idea that people within the NBA are criticizing the United States, which many of the criticisms on point, many of the criticisms can be agreed with, but that they will not do any criticism at all of China because of the business relationship. I think that's a fairly obvious hypocrisy that people can understand. They don't have to be MAGA heads to uh, necessarily 
see it and be put off by it. You're saying there's no evidence. I think the evidence is is the decline. I would again ask for the people who find it so hard to believe, why? Why would it be so hard to believe that? I think it's fairly easy to believe. Well, so it's reminiscent to me a little bit of the conversation around NFL ratings going down during the Kaepernick kneeling controversy and that being attributed to the Kaepernick kneeling controversy when at the same time ratings for NASCAR were going way down. And, you know, you could look at ratings for NASCAR going down and and maybe if you had if you didn't know anything about NASCAR, be like, well, they must be protesting. There there must be people pissed off about these drivers talking about social justice. Yeah, but then does that prove that it can't be true for football? Because I believe that that particular story tracked with the ratings going down and then the NFL did something draconian to stop the kneeling and then the ratings went back up again. I mean, it's not inconceivable to me that the people who say they're pissed off by that kind of thing are pissed off by that kind of thing. I am not. I don't care. I mean, kneel away. Uh, That's fine by me. But there seems to be a population of people who actually do give a shit. I do not deny that it's possible that what you're saying is true. What I'm saying is that I don't think that you saying that it's obvious uh, means that it's obvious. Well, what do you think the truth is? What do you think the truth is then? I feel like this season is a really challenging one to make any conclusions from just because it's so unusual. It's games being played at a time they've never been played before in a world in which people's lives have been like totally thrown into disarray. But what does that have to do with the pre-pandemic drop? You're saying that there are a lot of small things that don't matter or that don't explain the drop. Maybe if you add up a bunch of small things, that at least gets you some of the distance there. If you add up the Mm -hmm. fact that the league has this younger demographic that's going to be more predisposed to cord cutting. If you add in the fact that we're in a sort of generational shift in the NBA, if you add in the fact that um, a lot of the you know star power in the league is in the West, if you add in the fact that Zion was hurt uh, all year, if you add in all of these other factors, maybe it doesn't get you all the way up to 45%, but it gets you, you know, some distance of the way there, right? Yeah, I I would agree that there's sort of this gestalt issue that the NBA has and that they've got multiple factors. When people bring up NBA, the word cloud that pops up is a bunch of positive things and a bunch of exciting things. And it seems recently it's, well, you know, you've got the China issue and there's also the load management and the guys change teams every year. And and I wouldn't deny any of those factors. I just think that there seems to be a taboo against acknowledging uh, certain factors versus acknowledging other factors. Do you feel like it's fair to separate out league executives versus players when it comes to responsibility to talking about um China, because this is a league where um, Tabo Cephalosha and Sterling Brown have both been victims of police brutality, where this video just came out of Masai Ujiri being assaulted by a law enforcement official at the like moment of greatest triumph for him and his team. Um, these are issues that affect 
the players, the predominantly black league, it affects them, it affects their their families. Doesn't it make sense for people in this community to be focused on that and not to expect them to include China in every statement that they're making? Whereas maybe for the we would expect the commissioner and executives from these teams to actually speak more strongly and and not support having a training camp uh, at a place where Uyghurs are getting detained. Not, I think it makes sense for people to discuss matters that are close to their heart, that are influencing their communities. I certainly wouldn't tell them not to, but there are players who make a tremendous amount of money off of business with China specifically. I mean, the superstar players go there every off season and do a tour of the country, which is why it was so funny to hear so many people in the NBA saying it's far away. It's over there. We don't know anything about it. it there is an intense connection. It's 15 or was 15% of the BRI uh, that pays players. I don't think that anybody should be left off the hook in the league vis-a-vis their business with China. Now, I think you're erecting a bit of a straw man saying that they should talk about it all the time. I, they completely run from it. They don't talk about it ever. I, I think maybe something in between would make a little more sense. Um, and if they don't want to do it, they don't want to do it either. I'm not the moral arbiter of the NBA. If they want to continue to conduct business with China and not ever talk honestly about about the other rival superpower in the world, that's their prerogative, but it appears to have a domestic cost in the United States. That's fairly intuitive. Yeah, I do think it's fair to criticize players who are making a lot of money from from China for not saying anything. That seems reasonable. I don't think that's everybody in the league. Yeah, everybody is making money, but kind of in an indirect way because it's part of the BRI. But certainly some players are bigger, <laughs> bigger reapers of rewards through the sneaker companies than others. That's That's certainly true. What I think about the China stuff is that the people who claim to have stopped watching the league because of it would not be fans of the NBA if um, everyone was saying exactly what they had wanted them to say about China, that they would find another reason to be mad at the NBA. Like, you feel, do you think that Ted Cruz would be happy with what the NBA is doing right now if they were saying everything that Ted Cruz wants them to say about China? Oh, there is undoubtedly a cohort that is bashing the NBA with China because it's convenient and they never liked the NBA in the first place. Yeah, there are some people, they don't care about the Uyghurs and they don't care about Hong Kong and they're only pretending to because they also don't care about the NBA and they like uh, they like uh, attacking the NBA. But within all of that, there is also a, a cohort. There's also a contingent legitimately put off. Michael Jordan was criticized for not speaking out about sweatshop labor mm. conditions with, um, you know, Nike and and how his shoes were being made in Asia. But I don't recall there being any kind of decline in ratings or the popularity of the NBA because of, you know, Jordan abetting sweatshop conditions in Asia. There was less ill will towards the nation of China. They were a less credible rival to the United States. Well, I don't think the sweatshop was in China, but I, I, I think that, um, yeah, we're not, to what you're saying, uh, there's not exactly a complete 
fairness to how we judge any of these things. And some things roll off the celebrities back and other things stick. And it seems like for Jordan, that was a, a PR crisis that was handled and kind of went away. But this this current thing is getting at something, I think, beyond morality. Um, I think that there are elements of nationalism and maybe a credible fear that the United States is being overtaken by a, a country with more population that looks to be on the upswing. And so it's just a different dynamic right now. If we're looking at the Daryl Morey tweet as the PR crisis, I don't think it would be crazy just based on evidence, and you're going to say it's because I'm inside my bubble, to look at that also as a PR crisis that went away. I just don't perceive there being a huge number of people who are like not watching Lakers Blazers right now because of China. Well, now I'm going to go the other direction. In some ways, I think the NBA didn't get proper credit for being a little bit <laughs> being a little bit more principled than some other corporations. Adam Silver did not say we need to fire Daryl Morey. Daryl Morey is still you know, the GM of the Rockets and China's government appears to badly have wanted him fired. And I think what happened to the NBA and why the NBA got caught in a particularly bad way is that they made China part of their branding. They bragged about how well they were doing in China. You know, we're not as popular as football, but we're international and we're conquering the world. And so since the NBA made China such a part of its brand, when the relationship between the two nations curdled, I think it hurt them particularly badly, even if they handled it maybe in a way that was more moral than they were given credit for. Ethan Strauss covers the NBA for The Athletic. Thanks to Ethan and Josh. And now it is time for After Balls. In his piece about the NBA's ratings problems, Ethan took a shot at the social justice messages that players are wearing on the backs of their jerseys. Not like all of them, just Luka Doncic's. Uh, the entire Mavericks team decided to wear equality on the backs of their jerseys, and the Mavs are an international team, so a bunch of them are rendering equality in their native languages. J.J. Barea, Igualidad, Maxi Kleber did it in German, Gleichberechtigung, Christoph Porzingis in Latvian, Vienliziba, um, and Luka Doncic, Enakopraunost, E-N-A-K-O-P-R- a-V-N-O-S-T. Enakopraunost. I looked up one of those pronouncing things on Google. Ethan wrote that casual fans who haven't necessarily heard of Luca and aren't necessarily listening to the announcers at full volume are just supposed to know that Enakopraunost is Slovenian for equality and not assume that this is another dude entirely who vaguely looks like the European phenom they might have heard Scott Van Pelt mention once. Just what is accomplished by an American, or anyone for that matter, reading Enakopraunost on a jersey? Well, I mean, you could argue that Luca is sending a message to Slovenia that Black Lives Matter, which is cool. But come on, man, don't be a killjoy. I love Enakopraunost. I can even type it without looking at it now, Joel. Can you? That's how engrossed I am, yes. You've gotten so much better at it in the last few minutes uh, that Thank we've you. been going over it. Uh, I probably am going to fail to pronounce it later, but we'll give it a shot. But yeah, I'm into it too, man. We're all learning something. We're learning words in different languages. I mean, what's yep. what's the problem, you know? No problem at all. Joel, what's your Enakopraunost? Darius Geis. So USA Today published a story last week detailing accusations that the former LSU running back Darius Geis raped two students when he was a freshman in 2016. USA Today's investigation found the women's allegations were shared with multiple people at the school 
and that even LSU coach Ed Orgeron referred to the assault in a conversation with one of his players. That player was one of the women's boyfriends. But both women said no one from LSU interviewed them or potential witnesses about the allegations. And USA Today found the school didn't appear to have investigated the allegations against Geis at all. The report came out on the heels of Geis' recent arrest on multiple domestic violence charges in Virginia. The Washington football team cut Geis the same day. Many of these details are new, but the noise around Geis isn't. In the 2018 NFL draft, Geis slipped to the end of the second round of the draft after having previously been projected as a first-round draft pick. There was a lot of speculation then as to why Geis dropped so far in the draft, and I can say that rumors about these allegations came up back then. So now they're out there. But it's worth mentioning that another story about Geis came out on the same day as that USA Today investigation. Joan Neeson, a former writer for Sports Illustrated, wrote about a run-in she had with Geis when reporting on a profile for him in 2017. She went down to Baton Rouge and did all the usual stuff. She lined up interviews and even went over to his alma mater, Baton Rouge Catholic High School, to speak with his old football coach. Totally normal stuff. Then Joan went over to the LSU sports facility to interview Geis, and he never showed. The next day, Joan gets a text from Geis. Why the fuck are you poking around my life? Get out of my business or else. Joan forwarded the message to the LSU SID who arranged for the interview. I'll read Joan's words here. But I was still nervous to do it. No, I was scared. The interview never happened. Her interview was pushed off again, and she had to get home. She later wrote the profile, making no mention of the threat, but did say that Geis didn't make himself available for the interview. I wish I'd seen that story before last week, because then what had happened to me at LSU that same fall would have made a lot more sense. In the fall of 2017, I just started working for ESPN as a national college football reporter. My very first assignment for ESPN was to cover LSU's home opener against BYU, which had been moved to New Orleans because of hurricane-related flooding in Houston. The plan was that I'd help cover the game and then spend a couple days in Baton Rouge getting what I needed to do a profile on Geis. It didn't happen that way. I drove into town Friday night and watched Baton Rouge Catholic play against its rival Parkview Baptist. I went to New Orleans on Saturday to cover LSU-BYU. After the game, I caught Geis on the field and shook his hand. In that fleeting moment, he seemed like a nice, well-mannered, private school-educated kid. He said he looked forward to speaking with me. Sunday, I drove back to Baton Rouge. I was supposed to interview Geis then. Didn't happen. We were supposed to meet Monday. Didn't happen. In the meantime, I did all the things reporters are supposed to do. I read up on Geis' life, which would absolutely count as a rough upbringing. His father was murdered in 2003, and his brother was convicted on attempted murder charges in 2016. I tried to put all that stuff into context. I drove over to the little ramshackle house where he grew up, which sits damn near underneath the I-10 overpass and not more than a couple miles from LSU's campus. I read up on the history of segregation in Baton Rouge, including the figurative distance from Geis' neighborhood to LSU. And like Joan, I went over to Catholic High to interview his old high school coach. I sat in the living room of a family member who Geis lived with for a lot of his childhood. They all said the things you'd expect that Geis used his bad circumstances to become a good kid. Meanwhile, Geis continued to blow me off. Tuesday was now out, and Geis passed along through the SID that his grandmother had a medical emergency. Well, that was weird, because I just interviewed her a couple hours earlier. It was clear that LSU was making excuses for him. I eventually had to go, and I never spoke with Geis, and I never wrote the story. It was just a tremendous waste of time and resources. 
I'm still sorry about that ESPN. I just assumed Geis was a flighty, immature kid and that LSU was simply allowing him to be that at my and ESPN's expense. I didn't think anything too sinister was going on, but it was clear that LSU bottom line was covering for Geis. Then a few months later, I started hearing all those rumors. Then Geis slipped in the draft. And last week, long after I'd forgotten about him and LSU, I read USA Today's investigation and I read Jones' post about her run-in with Geis. And now, in a time when some people are risking it all to play football and don't care who gets hurt to do it, everything made so much more sense. Jones said it best. We, media fans, everyone not sworn to the sports code of moral ambiguity, have to be smarter, louder, better. Football isn't going to. That's right. Football isn't going to be better. It's going to be up to us to make football do the right thing. That was incredible, Joel. I mean, when you were reporting the story, I mean, it's hard to go do all that legwork and then decide to punt. Did you try? Did you think about writing around it or were your, was your <sighs> radar so on that it felt like, man, we should just move on here? It just didn't make a lot of sense without guys, right? Um, and to that point, he had not even really done anything. Like yeah. he'd had a great freshman year and he ran for like 80 yards against BYU, you know? So it just didn't, it, without his voice, it didn't seem to make as much sense. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, ESPN has so much money, they can just send you someplace and be like, ah, forget it, you know, just move on, right? Well, and and hindsight being what it is, you got to be pretty glad that you didn't write a heroic overcoming your circumstances story now. Oh, yeah. I would not have wanted that under my byline at this point. So it worked out. All right, Stefan, what is your a nakopraunost? That's good. Um, I've I've mentioned on the show before that I was a fan of the University of Pennsylvania men's basketball team long before I went to college in West Philadelphia. That's because I have a brother who's 11 years older than I am who also went to Penn. He was there in the early 1970s when Penn basketball was a national power. The team finished third in the AP poll in his first two years on campus, losing in the Eastern Regional Finals both times. The first one was the shocker. Penn was 28-0 and was blown out 90-47 by Cross down Villanova. The second was to a number two North Carolina team that featured Bob McAdoo, Bobby Jones, and George Carl. Penn's head coaches were Dick Harder the first year, and then Harder moved on to Oregon, and then Chuck Daly, and both of those guys would eventually land top jobs in the NBA. As a consequence of Penn's greatness, I became a fan. At seven, I could recite the team's starting lineup and sing the fight songs. In my brother's senior year, he took me to the first round NCAA game where the Quakers lost to Providence. Marvin Bad News Barnes had 26 for the Friars. By then, the names of the Quakers had changed. Corky Calhoun, Phil Hankinson, and Dave Wall had moved on to the NBA. My new favorite player was six foot seven junior forward Bob Bigelow. And he was my favorite pretty much because my brother said that his nickname was Boobs, at least among students, because he ran with his chest pushed out forward. Bigelow averaged 12 points and eight rebounds as a senior, third on the team in both categories. He was a lockdown defender who deferred to better scorers at the other end. He wasn't considered NBA material. In fact, he never even made an all-Ivy League team. 
But after his senior season in 1975, Bigelow was invited to play in a three-game all-star tournament in Hawaii, and he lit it up. He averaged almost 20 a game against the likes of soon-to-be number one pick David Thompson. Bigelow went from unknown to a first-round pick taken by the Kansas City Omaha Kings at number 13. The draft certainly proved in my mind that I could play, Bigelow told future New York Times reporter Alan Schwartz in a 1989 story in the Penn student newspaper, The Daily Pennsylvanian. I didn't always think so. Bigelow lasted four years at the far end of three benches in the NBA. I quickly resumed my anonymity, he told Schwartz. I soon became cynical and decided that I wasn't going to be one of those bench sitters. I stayed long enough to get my pension. I was thinking of Bigelow because he died last week at age 66, apparently of a heart attack. I had interviewed him a few years back, not to reminisce about his Quaker glories, but about his post-NBA career. Bigelow worked a couple of years at the Center for the Study of Sport and Society at Northeastern University that was founded by Richard Lapchick, and he did outreach with kids in Boston schools. After his own sons started playing sports, Bigelow told me he was motivated to try to change the system. He wound up becoming an advocate for overturning the youth sports industrial complex and its misplaced emphases on winning, on early specialization, on enabling abusive coaches and overbearing parents. Parents. Bigelow wrote a couple of books on the subject. The first was called Just Let the Kids Play, and he said that he had given more than 2,500 talks to leagues and teams and parents and coaches over the years. He argued for limiting travel sports at younger ages, for shorter seasons, for equal playing time, for inclusivity, for having fun. He wanted adults to stop shouting at kids and start understanding them. He was totally my kind of coach. Bigelow knew that it was a Sisyphean cause. Idiot sports parents and coaches aren't going anywhere, but he tried to change one mind and one behavior at a time. I had called him up because I was thinking about writing a book about girls and sports. We talked about the travel sports cult, the history of girl sports, the lack of information for coaches on child development and gender, and the obstinance of know-it-all parents. Some want to listen, some don't, Bigelow told me. Some think they know when they don't. I tell them simply, you have to put your ego on the shelf. It's not about you, and it's not about winning. If these kids ever become good athletes, it's going to be long after you have them. You're just another little stepping stone on the road to older childhood and adulthood. In an email on Sunday, Richard Lapchick told me that Bigelow was a big man with a big heart. Bob Bigelow is survived by his wife, Nancy, the retired longtime head swimming coach at Tufts, and their two sons. Go Quakers. That's great stuff. And uh, Bob Bigelow sounds like my kind of guy too, man. We need more of him. We certainly do. More advocates for kids playing sports the right way. A great tribute, man. Thanks, Joel. That's our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more Hang Up and Listen. In our bonus segment this week, we'll talk to David Ubbin about college football and whether it should return. What's the end game here? Because if you're trying to get them to reverse the decision, like I said, going onto the AstroTurf field in front of the Fogo de Chao and Big Ten offices and yelling at a pile of bricks, it doesn't really do much. 
To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Joel Anderson and Josh Levine, I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Inako Praunost. Inako Praunost. Eh, Inako Praunost. Inako Praunost. Inako Praunost. Inako Praunost. Inako Praunost, I think. Inako Praunost. The one I heard was Inako Praunost. Without like the V was silent, but whatever. E prakonavost. Okay. Enako pranost. Enako pranost. Enako pranost. Okay. All right. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.